Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Debt deadline. Evergrande says it will meet a bond repayment, but more are due. Taper tensions. Investors hoping for clarity from the Fed. And climate concerns. The U.S., China, and U.K. all call for action at the United Nations. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Wednesday. Let's get right to the markets. And we've got a positive tone in the pre-market on Wall Street with all the major averages set for solid gains in early trading. Europe is higher as well. This follows a roller coaster session on Tuesday when U.S. stocks tried and failed to regain some of Monday's sharp losses. News that the Chinese central bank is injecting billions worth of liquidity into the financial system and assurances from deeply indebted Chinese property developer Evergrande that it will make a key domestic bond payment All of that looks like it's boosting sentiment, at least for the moment. That helped push Chinese stocks higher on their first day of trading this week. Japanese stocks pulled back, the central bank there announcing that it will keep pumping billions worth of stimulus into the economy as it monitors ongoing supply chain disruptions that are pressuring exports. The Federal Reserve updates investors on the future of its massive stimulus programs uh, programs happening. That is happening later today. All this as crucial budget and debt ceiling battles, all of that still heating up in Washington. That story coming in just a minute. But first, let's get to our top driver and the latest on the Evergrande crisis. The Chinese property giant saying it reached a deal with bondholders to settle an interest payment on a domestic bond that is due on Thursday. But the debt-ridden company hasn't said anything about its bigger international bond payment that's also due tomorrow. Claire Sebastian joins us now with the details. So uh, we've got one down, one to go, an even bigger one to go. Walk us through if the interest payment on the one bond that was put in already, uh, does it put Evergrande in better shape, in any better shape at all, or is a default still likely? I mean, it's a tiny fraction, Alison, of the, the overall debt pile. 36 million, according to data from Refinitiv, uh, is the interest on that loan that they have now reached a deal to repay. That's a domestic yuan-denominated uh, bond. Uh, it was settled through negotiations, according to a filing with the Shenzhen Stock Exchange. Exchange, But that's less than a third uh, of the interest, the, the total interest that was due on Thursday. The other dollar-denominated bond uh, is worth, the interest on that, worth more than $80 million. And overall, their debt pile, of course, uh, some three 300 billion. So this is a tiny fraction. It does show a willingness to pay, possibly some avenues to pay. So it has improved sentiment a little bit, but overall it does not remove the specter of default from the table. Uh, it, it's still hanging over this company with these deadlines this week. And we still don't know, no official word from Beijing on what they plan to do, if anything, to stabilize the situation. They did, as you say, inject billions into the financial system, some 120 billion uh, today. That's on top of 100 billion on Saturday, another 100 billion last Friday, way more than usual. So that sort of smacks uh, of an effort to, to improve liquidity, make sure that banks have cash on hand if there is going to be some kind of default uh, event. But we don't know yet. The, the, the consensus among analysts is that, that Beijing will not bail out this company, but will help manage some kind of orderly restructuring. 
Yeah, it's sort of night and day what we saw happen Monday, and now we're seeing solid green arrows today. So things have changed a bit, but should U.S. investors kind of relax now about this, or should they remain on guard? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. JP Morgan actually polled uh, investors this week uh, on this issue. Uh, 48% of them don't think that Evergrande will spiral uh, into a macro crisis. But of the 52% uh, that do think it has the potential to do that, most of those, the vast majority, think the impact will be limited to China and Asia. So so overall, you know, this could present a potential shock. This is an enormous, like it's it's hard to overstate, 300 billion uh, in debt that, that, that the company could default on. But most people think that either it will be limited to China because of uh, of Beijing's tools to deal with it, or that if it, if, if, it, if it is disorderly in some way, it will be mostly limited to that region because of the way the company is, is less interconnected than, say, Lehman Brothers, which has been compared to to the global financial system. Well, I assure you $300 billion is no small debt in my book. <laughs> Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. In the coming hours, the U.S. Federal Reserve will state its intentions, and tapering is the word investors are looking for. They want to know whether the Delta variant means the foot will remain on the stimulus gas pedal. Let's bring in Christine Romans with all of uh, what you're expecting from the Fed. You know, what enters my mind is a lot has changed since the last Fed meeting up until this one, um, you know, obviously the Delta variant still hanging around, but, um, you know, the, 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 the gridlock on Capitol Hill, um, the latest weak jobs report and expected weak economic data to come. Do you think the conversations among uh, conversations among the Fed are changing Absolutely. And you've laid it all out perfectly here. You know, you've got deep uncertainty on the fiscal front here, even to the tune of funding the government and raising the debt ceiling, critical, critical to avoid some kind of a financial uh, crisis. So the Fed has to have its eye on that. And then deep uncertainty regarding the recovery because of the Delta variant and some of the data that we've seen, even a lot of real-time data where we saw jobless claims increase a little bit again, uh, the pace of job creation slowing, And these concerns about inflation. So the Fed has to very carefully uh, walk this line between not having so much stimulus in the system that inflation gets out of control and at the same time recognizing that the pace of the advance, the recovery, maybe it's slowing a little bit. And so you don't want to take away the supports to the economy at exactly the wrong time. So this is exactly what the Fed chief is going to be grilled about, I'm sure, from the savvy financial journalist later today when he has a press conference uh, after the Fed makes this uh, makes the results of its meeting known, Allison. How do you think the market will react, though, if the Fed goes ahead and delays uh, pulling back on that tapering? I mean, that's the tapering is what many are saying maybe the economy doesn't need at this point, that it's causing more inflation and that it's really not filtering into the economy and helping, let's say, the jobs market, that it is time to go ahead and taper. What do you see happening there? Well, when you're looking at an economy this year that even with these latest concerns about uh, about the Delta variant, this economy this year will probably log its best growth since, you know, uh, at least the 90s, if not uh, the Reagan administration, 6 percent growth, 5 percent growth in the economy this year. That's very, very good. You could see how some people could argue, why are why is the Fed buying one hundred twenty billion dollars in securities, one hundred twenty billion dollars in direct injection into the economy when you've got an economic growth that is already, you know, going so briskly. So they have to measure between, 
you know, inflation and inflationary policies, but also not killing or crimping the recovery. And that's going to be the fine line to walk. And that's why I think it's unclear how the market is going to respond. I think there is a conventional wisdom that there will be an announcement in November about taper and then the tapering will begin before the end of the year. That is the, the thinking, the, 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 you know, the thinking, the, the smart money is on that uh, on Wall Street right now. But again, conditions can still change. So that's why we watch these meetings so carefully. And I, I know you touched on this. We touched on the gridlock on Capitol Hill, but the debt ceiling, it, it, I can feel it hanging over the market, kind of buzzing in the background. We're not yeah. seeing it, obviously, today with the solid green arrows. Are we going to see a freak out in the market at some point? Is there a deadline that we should be watching for? I think a freakout is very, very likely, especially since you've had 54, 55 record highs for the S&P 500 so far this year. You have the Delta variant. You have this Evergrande uncertainty about if there could be any spillover. Right now, I'm mostly hearing people don't think there'll be spillover into into the broader uh, U.S. market. But but look, you have finally all of these uncertainties and what has been a very calm, slow consistent record highs in the stock market. So that would suggest to me that the risk is always on the downside, right? When you have these uh, uncertainties that filter through, when the filter through in the market, the market has done so well, really, um, during COVID. And that is what has been so kind of interesting, right? Maddening for some uh, that the real world costs of COVID have been just so devastating, but the financial markets have done very, very well because by and large, especially in the U.S., the policy responses were fast and big and appropriate, and they, um, you know, they, they saved a meltdown. Yeah, well, you know, and we say it all the time that the stock market does not necessarily reflect what's going on in the exactly. economy. Christine Romans, thanks for breaking all that down for nice us. Nice to see you. Good to see you, too. The climate crisis is dominating the United Nations General Assembly in New York. The U.K. prime minister will reportedly deliver a message that the world must grow up and tackle the problem when he speaks later today. Already, the U.S. has pledged to double the value of its climate aid to developing nations. And China says it will no longer build coal plants abroad. Phil Black joins me now. Phil, how significant is it that the U.S., China and the U.K. all are talking about climate at the U.N. General Assembly? Yeah, Alison, they're all talking about it because... Uh, and making these announcements because there is a looming deadline. The COP26 climate conference is due to begin in just over a month uh, under Prime Minister Boris Johnson's leadership. And as significant as perhaps the announcements are by China and the US, uh, it is, they are still not enough in themselves to ensure that this conference uh, will meet its determined goals. And so there is a reason Boris Johnson is using pretty strong language whenever he gets the chance uh, this week, essentially talking about how history will judge us very, very harshly unless <clears throat> we really do act more boldly very, very quickly. And that is because these talks uh, are looming as a potential failure uh, on his watch because they are looking unlikely to meet the two most significant goals, the two, most, the two key measures here. The first being the individual uh, commitments that countries are making in order to ensure uh, that carbon emissions are reduced and global climate change is limited to 1.5 uh, degrees above pre-industrial levels. A recent UN report card suggested that under the existing commitments, the world is nowhere close to achieving uh, that goal, that cataclysmic climate change is still likely by the end of the century. And the other uh, key goal, and this is really important for building goodwill internationally, is the willingness of rich countries to give 
big amounts of climate aid money to poor countries to help them deal with the consequences of climate change, a problem that they are not responsible uh, for making. That's where President Biden's uh, once again doubling uh, of US uh, aid uh, comes into it, to around $10 billion uh, a year. And as significant as that is, that, is still, uh, that still allows for a significant shortfall in what has been the long-standing goal of $100 billion uh, a year. So for all of these reasons, there is a real urgency, a looming deadline, and a sense that these goals are simply too ambitious uh, for leaders to meet at this time, Alice. And Phil, as you've been talking on the right of your screen, we've been looking at pictures taken just moments ago of Boris Johnson meeting with Nancy Pelosi. Let me let me ask you this, because as we look forward to what's going to happen today, what can we expect to hear from Boris Johnson later? Yeah, more tough talk on this, more, more urgency, uh, more pleading with the world to step up, show leadership, uh, and take responsibility. And we understand he's going to do this uh, through an extended metaphor that very much compares the world's attitude towards climate to that of uh, a teenager with a misguided sense uh, of their own mortality, making very poor life decisions. Boris Johnson is going to argue, we understand, that the world cannot afford to be adolescent-like in its, in its approach to climate anymore. It is time to grow up. Alice. Okay, Phil Black, thanks so much. The British government has agreed, a deal, agreed to a deal with an American fertilizer manufacturer to resume production of carbon dioxide after soaring gas prices had forced it to stop. CO2 is vital to Britain's food industry. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, so what did the government say about this deal and why is it even intervening here? Yeah, the UK government has said it's going to give limited financial support to CF Fertiliser, a UK company's operational costs for the next three weeks. And the Environment Secretary yesterday said this will cost many millions of pounds. And this is at a time where the gas price is high. It's threatening to put multiple energy providers in the UK out of business. And yet this fertiliser company posed a very real, very imminent, very serious uh, threat to the UK's food security. So this is why they're stepping in. CF fertilizer as a byproduct produces CO2 and it actually accounts for around 60% of the UK's food grade CO2. It is integral to all sorts of processes. It's really quite extraordinary. It's used to stun livestock before slaughter. It is used uh, for carbonating drinks, for food storage, for food transportation even for food packaging. So this has become a really big issue and actually just added pressure onto food and drink supply chains, which have been buckling as a result of the pandemic and also Brexit. So they have stepped in. I think it exposes a major fragility when you're looking at food security in the UK. So much reliance on one American company here. And also it sets a precedent. Who else might the government step in to save here? Alison? Yeah. Um, meantime, energy prices, as we see them soaring, uh, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, is, is calling on Russia to, to send more gas to Europe before the winter comes. Russia has already declined to increase gas supply to Europe. So the question is, will, will the call from the IAEA change anything? There's even some speculation that Russia is deliberately holding back gas supply. I'm not sure these words from the IEA will change anything at all. We have had comment from Gazprom, Russia's state energy provider. Uh, they said it's fulfilled its long contracts, long-term contracts. It also says it seeks to satisfy the request for additional supplies. So it certainly feels at odds there. The IEA says they can do more. They also say it's an opportunity for Russia to underscore its credentials as a reliable supplier to Europe. As you say, others have said much, much more. They've gone further. 
analysts, some industry exports, uh, experts have suggested that actually Russia here is exacerbating the situation, not exporting as much gas, keeping those prices very high to lend weight to their argument for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That would run from the Baltic Sea down to Germany, critically and rather controversially, of course, bypassing Ukraine. Now, Russia, of course, denies this. It has said, though, uh, just in recent weeks that uh, the gas price would balance out should this pipeline be approved. Of course, regardless of the situation with Russia, there are a number of reasons why we are seeing uh, gas prices so high in Europe. There's the demand issue, the fact that so many economies post-lockdown are simply needing more gas. And then there's the supply issue. We had a really long winter last winter, so lots of gas was used then. Uh, Wind, solar output was being very, very poor. And of course, the whole continent is just shifting away from coal and nuclear power plants, decommissioning them. So it's really a perfect storm here. But yes, increasingly a lot of attention on Russia and whether they could do more here. Alison. All right. Anna Stewart, thanks for all that great context. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. The Taliban have nominated their spokesman, Suhail Shaheen, as Afghanistan's new representative to the United Nations. The group wants the U.N. to recognize him rather than the current envoy who was appointed by the government that was ousted by the Taliban. Both sides have requested to attend the General Assembly this week, but it's still unclear who will represent Afghanistan. Cleanup efforts are underway in Melbourne, Australia, after an unusually powerful earthquake not far from the city. It was measured at magnitude 5.9, the strongest tremor to hit the area in decades. It caused some damage to buildings and was felt hundreds of miles away, but there were no reports of serious injury. Still to come on first move from gas to hot air, the CEO of a major European energy company says... Green hydrogen is the solution to the climate crisis. I will speak to the head of SNAP. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks remain on track for a higher open this Wednesday. The big question is whether early session gains will stick or whether we'll see yet another turbulent session. A lot is riding on today's Fed policy statement. Fed officials are set to update investors on when they hope to begin pulling back on stimulus. Some Washington watchers suggest that the worsening fiscal gridlock in Washington may force the Fed to delay any tapering announcement. The Fed's surely watching the overseas economic picture as well. Nervousness over the future of indebted property developer Evergrande could unsettle the investment outlook for days and, and perhaps weeks. Evergrande says it will make an interest payment on a domestic bond after negotiating with its bondholders. The deal offers some relief to investors, but the company is due to make an even bigger interest payment on an overseas bond tomorrow. Joining me now is Mark Williams, chief Asia economist at Capital Economics. Mark, great to see you. Hi, Alison. So break this down for me, because we've got Evergrande already made an interest payment on one of its bonds, and uh, it's got an even bigger one that it has to make for tomorrow. Markets don't seem to care, U.S. markets at least as well, don't seem to care. Is Evergrande still on the brink of default? Can we all kind of breathe a sigh of relief yet? No, definitely not. So um, Evergrande has already essentially defaulted on some of its obligations. Um, A few days ago, we were told that they had not paid back some loan installments to Chinese banks. Um, Some domestic Chinese investors, households that have bought what they call wealth management products, um, have also not been getting their money back. I've been told it would take them a lot longer to get their money back. So 
today's um, announcement that they have paid back some of the interest due on, on one of their bonds is encouraging, but it certainly doesn't mean the company's out of the woods. Beyond China, who is exposed? I'm talking about American companies. Is it Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, HSBC? And what kind of exposure do they have? Well, the, the global exposure to Evergrande should not be that big. The company does issue bonds uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, there's about 20 billion US dollars worth of bonds there. But that's a drop in the ocean of Evergrande's overall liabilities. Overwhelmingly, um, the people it owes money uh, to or things to are Chinese banks, um, Chinese bondholders, uh, and particularly the, also the, the suppliers um, that it's been paying in IOUs within China over the past year or two, uh, and families who have put down deposits for properties that haven't yet been built. They're the people that really stand to lose out if, if Evergrande uh, defaults in a messy way. Let's back up a bit. How did Evergrande get into this situation in the first place? Well, China has been on a, a colossal boom in its real estate market for the past 25 years, really. Um, and Evergrande has been one of the most aggressive of the Chinese developers um, and has done very well in terms of you know, building, a, building out China's property stock. Um, however, it's done that by building up a huge amount of debt as well. Uh, and policymakers in August of last year started to really worry that the amount of debt that some developers were carrying was potentially destabilizing to the financial system. So they put in limits last August, telling over-leveraged uh, developers that they couldn't borrow anymore. And Evergrande was the biggest and the most um, debt-ridden of the of the developers. So it has, over the past year, been desperately find, trying to find other sources of revenues to pay back its, its existing debts. It's been selling its apartments at knockdown prices, um, it's been selling off other business arms, but it seems like it's running out of road. Its debts are still huge, uh, and it's finding it hard to, to, to drum up the cash. So Evergrande does, despite you know, today's announcement they've made a bond payment, it really does look in a bad way. The good news from the perspective of investors, whether in China or elsewhere, is that Evergrande really is, amongst the really big developers, out on a, on a limb in terms of how indebted it is. The other developers are in a much, uh, well, let's say, less unhealthy um, position and I think should be able to get through the next few months um, okay. You know, you look at what's going on with China's economy. Um, investors, um, you know, we've seen China cracking down on, on companies listed here in the U.S. There's a tech crackdown. Um, what is your sort of interpretation as to what's happening here and, and what kind of impact in totality would all of this have on the Chinese economy? Well, as you say, there's a few things going on. Different crackdowns are happening the, the property crackdown, if you like, preceded all of those because it was kicked off in August of last year when the government put these limits on, on developers' debts. Um, I think there's different motivations in different areas, but in each case, one common thread going between them is that we have a, a, a state that is trying to impose its will on lots of different parts of the economy. Um, we can sort of argue as to whether those individual steps are sensible, are good, but in the long run, this kind of centralization of control over key sectors of the economy, I think, has to be something that, that, that drags on growth. Certainly, um, the outlook for property developers, I think, is, is pretty weak anyway, given the demographic trends that we've got in China. The, um, a lot of people buy properties when they're getting married and the number of marriages is tumbling as the, um, the cohort of younger people gets smaller. The whole population is going to be shrinking quite soon. So um, certainly for property developers, 
the outlook isn't great. And of course, they have driven a, a significant chunk of China's growth um, over the past decade, and not just within China. Property construction accounts for about mm -hmm. a quarter of global demand for, for steel. So as this slowdown happens, it will affect China's overall growth, but it will also affect other parts of the world. Okay, Mark Williams, Chief Asia Economist at Capital Economics. Uh, great perspective. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. And you're watching First Move. The Market Open is next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday. Stocks, we are happy to report, are not falling on the first day of fall. We're seeing solid gains across the board for the major averages. That said, an early session rally, it did fizzle yesterday, and markets remain nervous over the Chinese debt crisis, fiscal dysfunction in Washington, and the future of Fed stimulus. The S&P 500 has closed lower in each of the past four trading sessions. It is currently down 4% from record highs. Stocks in the news today include Uber. Shares are rising after the company says it may turn a profit this quarter as ridership returns. Uber closed up 11 percent on Tuesday. And we are seeing shares of FedEx falling. It is cutting profit guidance. It says the lack of drivers is slowing package deliveries and driving up costs. Christina Hooper joins me now. She is the chief global market strategist at Invesco. Great to see you. Great to see you, too, Allison. Let's start off with the Fed. What are you expecting to hear from the Federal Reserve today? Well, the big question on everyone's mind is, will they or won't they announce the start of tapering? Uh, I'm in the minority, but I do believe they will announce that tapering is going to start soon. I just believe the economy is in a good place. And the Fed strongly believes that quantitative easing, those large-scale asset purchases, hasn't been a big help to the economy. It's been a bigger help to markets. And finally, we've had Jay Powell uh, strenuously assert that there is no connection between tapering and rate hikes. Uh, the bar is a lot higher for rate hikes, so we don't have to worry about that happening right away. And so I think uh, that the Fed is going to announce the start of tapering soon. Yeah, I think that uh, Jay Powell has separated the tapering versus the interest rate hikes to make it so we could so investors can take each action kind of piecemeal and not freak out everybody all at once. But we did see a freak out on Monday. Do you think we are at the beginning of a correction? Possibly. I realize that we are seeing solid green arrows today, but there is a, a lot going on. For, you know, the, the dysfunction on Capitol Hill. Covid we are, is still with us. Um, we do have Evergrande. Um, how do those um, things factor into your outlook? And let me add one other concern, because really uh, what is likely to overshadow uh, the Fed's announcement or non-announcement on tapering today is the dot plot and the potential that it looks more hawkish than the last time the dot plot was released. So I think that's creating some anxiety and trepidation in markets, uh, you know, for all the reasons you mentioned, and then some. Uh, and so my expectation is that we will see volatility. Uh, we s will see choppiness in the shorter term. But I am confident that stocks will end the year higher than where they are today. Uh, the economy is improving. And even if we see the start of tapering, this is an incredibly accommodative monetary policy environment. What will exactly rattle investors when you uh, talk about the dot plot? 
Well, um, if there is uh, an increase in the number of FOMC members that anticipate um, rate hikes sooner rather than later. Uh, so we had uh, a, a number of, um, certainly the minority, but a number of FOMC members um, suggest they would be in support of rate hikes as early as June of next year. Um, and so if we have more of that, um, that is likely to give real jitters to markets. Um, they've already come to accept um, that tapering is going to happen soon, whether it's October, November, December. Um, but um, markets have not yet digested the potential for rate hikes sooner. Now, having said all that, I think the dot plot is really irrelevant. It is just each individual member's policy prescription based on data they're seeing today. Uh, luckily, when they do make the decision, it's going to be based on data that they see um, at that time. And given uh, the uncertainty around the debt ceiling and the reconciliation package, do you think it is too soon to buy the dip? Well, I think this is an opportunity to dollar cost average what is likely to be a series of dips. Um, but I don't see resolution coming tomorrow for sure. And so I would anticipate continued volatility for at least the next several weeks. Oh, yes. As we usually expect at this time of the year, September and October. Thank you so much, Christina Hooper, the chief uh, global market strategist at Invesco. Great talking with you. Thank you. Natural gas prices in Europe have surged to record highs. Millions across the region face cold homes or high bills this winter. Italian energy utility SNAM is one of Europe's biggest gas pipeline operators. Its CEO says the situation could get very ugly unless we act quickly. Joining me is Marco Alvera. He is the CEO of SNAM. Great to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. And and I want to mention that you are also the author of a new book called The Hydrogen Revolution. This is your second book in two years. So congratulations. That's right. They're, the market's moving so fast. The books are coming out of date really quickly. We need to keep updating. That's interesting. down really fast. That's interesting. Let, let's first talk about what's going on in Europe, where there's, there's an energy crisis. The UK's business secretary is quoted as saying the country has more than sufficient capacity to meet demand and that he doesn't expect supply emergencies to occur this winter. Do you agree with him? I, I think a lot will depend on the weather, Alison. So what, what we have right now is a situation where storages aren't full. And the winter is beginning uh, very soon, and we will not be able to fill up all the storages unless we take immediate action. And it's not a European issue. It's a kind of Asia and Europe. Really, demand surprised everyone on the upside, and supply surprised everyone on the downside. And guess what? The elasticity here is, uh, is such that prices really, really jump up as soon as there's an imbalance in the market. So we really need to fill up the gas storages. We have them. We need to fill them up. Right. And and with low supply, uh, you know, high demand, skyrocketing uh, prices of gas. What's the solution here, not just now, but for the future? Well, I think we're hearing some good news from Norway. Whoever has availability of gas uh, is, is going to produce more of it. And luckily, we have abundant storage and abundant transport infrastructure. We simply need to create the incentives to fill up the storage when prices are so high. And when you look at the forward curves, you look at the future prices are lower than today, no one would, would be incentivized to really buy expensive gas to then take it out of storage when it's cheaper. So we need some policy efforts, and I think the UK is moving already in that direction when it comes to CO2 production. We need some support and some incentives to make sure 
that given we're in such a particular year with post-COVID uh, supply taking longer than expected to recover and demand shooting up higher than expected, we need some slight policy interventions just for this winter to fill up the storages. All right. We are expecting British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and President Biden to hold discussions on the need for nations to honor their climate com- uh, commitments and do more. It's a topic um, that you know we always talk about. But are we on this emissions reduction path as we're on this emissions reduction path? Are we even making a dent in climate change? We are making a dent, which is the bad news. But the very good news is that we now have very cheap renewable energy. And I spent 20 years in the fossil fuel industry working in electricity and then oil and gas. And I'm shocked to see how cheap uh, solar and wind are getting. So the, the whole issue of how do we finance this energy transition quickly will become a, an opposite issue, which is what a fantastic business opportunity to invest in this energy transition. Hydrogen is going to play a big role in this because it's a means of it's a way of transporting solar and wind energy from far away where it's cheap to produce them into our homes, into our trucks, into our factories. So I think COP will be a success. A lot of countries are joining the net zero effort. And when you have an objective like that of getting to zero CO2 emissions, first you have a, a task and something measurable, which is always very good. But then it forces us to look at the whole system solution. So we now have 70% of emissions are in countries that have pledged to get to net zero. Uh, Amazon and other companies are hoping this will Mm -hmm. happen by 2040, Europe by 2050, China said 2060. I think we need an extra nudge uh, to get people, uh, by the time we get to Milan uh, in a few weeks for the pre-COP and Glasgow uh, for the full COP in November, we need some some stronger pledges, ideally against coal and and moving forward this kind of net zero commitment that people are willing to make. And the US being back is is great, great good news for the Mm -hmm. whole global effort. Now, speaking about hydrogen specifically, um, it's not widely adopted at this point, but your company is taking on um, the mentality that if we build it, uh, they will come. Your company is spending a lot of money getting infrastructure ready for the hydrogen era. Well, the great news is that the gas pipelines we have are already suitable to transport 100 percent of hydrogen. So we have a lot of the infrastructure already in the ground. What we need to do is to scale up the manufacturing of the electrolyzer, which is what you need to transform solar or wind energy from electricity into hydrogen. It's very simple. You split water, which is H2O, in its constituent parts, so oxygen and hydrogen. So you take water, you take uh, renewable electricity, you produce hydrogen that behaves like a gas uh, but has no emissions. And and what's going to make it possible and going to make it possible really quickly at scale is that costs have been coming down very, very fast. When I first started studying hydrogen, it would cost around $1,000 per megawatt hour. Uh, Today, it costs around 50. When I spoke to Secretary Kerry uh, recently in Rome on his visit, the DOE is now committed to making green hydrogen available at $1 a kilo or $25 per megawatt hour by the end of the decade. This means producing a renewable fuel at the same cost as coal very, very soon. So we're going to reach oil parity in five years and coal parity in 10 years. And so that's the only way we can really get India and China to stop building new coal plants and to switch to entirely renewable sources. But because we have the pipelines there, because we have a lot of the storage infrastructure already there, this is going to be a a much cheaper uh, transition than people expect. In fact, it's going to be the biggest business opportunity that we've ever seen. You see the shift to hydrogen happening within how many years? 
I think it's going to happen within five years in some low-hanging fruits, like trains. In the U.S., all trains are running on diesel. Hydrogen mm -hmm. today can be made cheaper than diesel. Um, so we're going to see some, some low-hanging fruits, some early adopters moving within the next five years and mm -hmm. big, larger-scale applications within the decade. So it's a very short uh, period of time. We need to get the manufacturing up so that the supply is there when demand ramps up. But really, the, the, the key message and the, the best message is that all of this is going to be cheaper than today's energy costs. Okay. All right. Uh, Marco Alvera, CEO of SNAM, great talking with you. Thank you. Good to see you. And that's it for the show. Be sure to connect with me on Instagram and on Twitter at Alison Kosick. Marketplace Europe is next. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>